0: They're not in the business of coming in and taking over the show because they don't have time for that. The reason they're partnering up with someone is because they want them to drive. They want them to drive the business plan. They don't want to come in and just take over. That's not to their advantage.
1: You've probably heard the term institutional investor before, but do you know what it means? This type of investor has long been shrouded in mystery and controversy. Some investors love them, others refuse to work with them. Today we're bringing on private equity expert, John Azar, founder of Peak15 Capital, to debunk some misconceptions about institutional capital and also peel back the curtain on the sector of the real estate space that has long been misunderstood. Here we go. You work with private equity and institutional groups and that's really the main topic, the main theme I wanted to dive into today. You serve as the bridge between sponsors and their deals and uh, these private equity institutional capital groups. Uh, but a lot of people, I think that, that private equity is a buzzword in this space. So I really appreciate it. Just to start out, can you define what is a private equity group? A, a private
0: equity group, I mean, it's. it's and we, we are a private equity group. I mean, private equity groups, anybody who would essentially bring their own allocated capital, uh, whether it's in-house or through a fund. Uh, to other people's deals and fund them, and then take essentially either participate participate in a deal as a partner or participate in a deal as a as a limited partner or as a full general partner, um, and essentially be able to kind of structure some kind of a partnership through the capital stack. So they I mean, you know, they they're, most most private equity shops are really pr- are, are are capital allocators. That's really what they are, and you know, that's really what we are in a in a very simplistic way. We are we play in the capital market space. Um, you know, which means you know you know one of the value that we that we bring is, is capital to the table and uh, capital solutions. Um, but that is not all that private equity brings to the table. I, that's why I, I was careful to say one of the one of the things that we bring to the table is capital because a lot of time people have the misconception that a private equity shop is just all about money. It's just all about like you know what kind of check or the checks that they bring to the table. And that's not true. Sometimes, uh, a lot of times, in fact, the best sort of private equity companies out there are bringing to the table more than just money. They're bringing to the table expertise. They're bringing to the table collaboration. They're bringing to the table, um, you know, other other factors of the transaction that is needed, whether it's from a balance sheet perspective, or experience perspective, or um, operational perspective. Sometimes, uh, so it just it just depends. And then money, obviously, is a is a big probably the over, the over dominant portion of what they're bringing. but obviously, the, you know, it all starts and ends with, with, with money and what you, what you can bring to the table. But uh, but it, it's not uh, it's certainly not the only factor that, that identifies and, and certainly, um, you know, uh, brings to the table from from private equity shops. So. So, yeah, I mean, so, so it, it's a really sort of a diverse offering that, that private equity uh, companies bring to the table. But but mainly it is capital.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you really clarified that because I think there is some misunderstandings regarding the role of a private equity group. Now, I also know you work with institutional investors, and I think that might be maybe where we want to take the conversation. But can you clarify the difference between an institutional investor and the private equity group? It seems like the private equity is the umbrella and an institutional investor might be under that umbrella. But can you expand on what is an institutional investor?
0: yeah yeah there's no i mean you know you're right you're right private equity is is kind of an umbrella or maybe even institutional equity sometimes think of people think of institutional equity as uh you know as as hedge funds or pension funds or something like that uh and and that is correct i mean a lot of institutional equity is uh, the word institution really comes from the standpoint of uh you know a, a capital source that is being driven by some kind of a a committee an institutional committee of some sort that makes the decision on where to allocate capital and how to allocate capital, and and that usually is found in in larger you know larger shops that allocate capital into varying um, sectors, not just commercial real estate. So you know institutional capital could be Black Rocks of the world, you know uh, yeah, that's that's on a, sort of somewhat of a larger scale or or Goldman Sachs or you know you know, KKR or something like that. And these are, these are huge, large institutional shops, but it could also be pension funds. It could be endowments. Um, it could be university endowments or, 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 um, uh, state employee pension funds, uh, or also on the, on the smaller end, it could be institutional. It could be private equity shops that, that have a discretionary fund that they allocate capital out of, uh, for, for certain deals. So, um, so indirectly, I guess we fall under that guise of you know the evil institutional world, but but you know I'd like to think that it's that we don't. But and and I'd like to think that it's not an evil evil world necessarily. It's just a it's just a name, you know. That's that's all. It's just it's just an umbrella that people like to lump you know all, all kinds of companies under.
1: One hundred percent, and that's such an important distinction because I think these institutional groups, they we're going to get into like a lot of the misconceptions involving them, but you obviously work with these groups in your real estate business and as a result of that i imagine you have to really understand how they think and how they approach their own real estate investments in order to really facilitate those uh that that connection between the deals and those groups so to start off i mean in general i know this is going to be a very broad encompassing question but how, how do private equity firms or specifically institutional groups how do they analyze and assess potential real estate investments differently from Individual investors or smaller investment groups, if there is any difference.
0: Well, I mean, from an you know, if you're if you're referring to smaller investors, meaning like the retail investors, you know, it com- completely different. I mean, it's not the same. Um, it's not in the same ballpark of how they assess investments. I mean, retail investors depend on their, and, and they also vary in sophistication. Retail investor, one retail investor. Not all retail investors are created equal. I mean, you know, retail investors that. You know, if you take one retail investor who invested in a particular sector and have knowledge on it, you know, such as retail, because we deal with retail investors, high net worth investors as well for our fund, um, because that's who we raise money from for for our fund, uh, for our coGP GP fund. So um, a retail investor that have invested in, in syndications, retail syndications in particular. Um, and have knowledge of how you know how real estate space work and and what and you know, how money is being made in the retail in, in, the, in the in the real estate space or multifamily space in particular uh, is going to be completely different from a retail investor who has never invested in anything like that who's only invested maybe in stocks and bonds or or just put a, put their money in a, in a mutual fund and now they heard about real estate and they just want to kind of explore it so. I mean, you know, even, even among retail investors, those two investors are completely different and a completely different set of expectations. And then you take on institutional investors. I mean, that's a completely different animal altogether because that's, you know, the the, the set of expectations um, are completely different. They, you know, there's a, there's got to be a lot more sort of alignment. There's got to be a lot more. Um, and, and when I say alignment, meaning alignment of interest um, of, you know, when the deal does better or performs better that their their money is performing better and as well as the relationship as a whole is performing better some of the best institutional investors approach approach their relationship that way approach their relationship as mutually beneficial and mutually um you know mutually profitable to, to to both parties involved but they also have their metrics they have to they have to meet um you know institutional investors are driven by their own sort of mandates that they have within their companies they have uh you know it's not just a, you know, that's the one of the main differences between them and a retail investor. Retail investors could be just assessing what he, he or she may or may not need for their money and what they want their money to do. Uh, institutional investors are often, um, you know, oftentimes are representatives from, you know, what their company's mandate or fund mandates dictate them to, 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 to have to deliver. Um, so they have very strict guidelines on what they need and what they don't need. They're, they're not trying to be difficult, but they just, that's just the mandate of their, of their company. So, you know, if their company mandates that they can't invest, uh, anything under $10 million, for instance, um, that's just how they are. It's not like they're being, they're being picky but that that's just the mandate you know, if their mandate is they can't invest in, you know, they can't invest in self-storage. They can only invest in multifamily. That's what they have to do. Um, if they can't, uh, you know, if they ma- if their mandate is they have to achieve, uh, you know, over fifteen percent IRR returns, uh, otherwise it's a no go. That's what they have to do. So, so I mean, you know, there's a lot of lot of metrics that they have to they have to abide by um, that is being that is being mandated by their sort of you know either investment committee or, or sort of the, the investment mandates that set in, in place for them, as opposed to a retail investors who's just really just kind of trying to assess whether this is going to work for him and his family personally um, and kind of preserve their wealth and assess what the risks are and see what the returns are going to be for them.
1: I'm aware that you know, it's, it's obviously becoming more more apparent that there is a big difference between these two types of investors. And the goal of this conversation, I would say, is to at least put a dent in that like sort of mystery shrouding the institutional capital space. Um, personally, I, I we're, we're always hearing about retail investors and how they think, how they approach investments. But there's I don't know if there's as much information out there on these institutional groups. So I really want to, yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, I I was going to say one word to to differentiate would be, you know, think of institutional investors as more partners than investors. Um, You know, retail investors are investors. They're true investors because they're really putting their money to work and they're just, you know, they're depending on you for the knowledge and, and, and the safety and the drive of the business plan and all that kind of stuff. So institutional investors are not that way. Institutional investors, when they put their money to work, They're really partnering with you They're, you know, yes, they are depending on you also still to drive the business plan forward, but they have their own set of demands and criteria and they have their own sort of sense of reporting. And, um, you know, they are uh, they're going to demand a lot out of that relationship as a true partnership should um, as opposed to a retail investor.
1: So, yeah, no, that's awesome, man. And so let's let's maybe instead of talking about like retail investors, let's maybe take the angle of the operator sponsor, um, because maybe that's more focused, like they might have their own access to their own pool of retail investors, whereas the institutional group has their, their own funds, um, unless they have their own investors, which you can probably provide more clarity on. Uh, I did want to expand on the du- due diligence process. Is it the same for a normal syndication operator, uh, sponsor team as it is with the institutional group? Or are there any drastic differences in that process and one thing i did want to kind of tie on to that is there is this general sentiment regarding investor uh, philosophy when it comes to investing in real estate uh, the, the the preservation of capital or just investing in general the their motive about preserving capital and how that's more of a priority over making a profit and like the excitement they get so they're they're more fearful of losing money than the excitement they get towards making money and so to kind of tie on to that how do these larger groups tend to balance that desire to make a profit and also preserve capital
0: uh, well they 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 balance it out by by doing a very a lot deeper due diligence on the sponsor and on the deal itself so they balance that by making sure that the deal is 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 meeting the the sort of the profit projections that they expect um that they have that that it's hitting all the metrics that they kind of lay lay down as far as the, what they expect out of the deal um from a performance standpoint um so yeah i mean per, capital preservation is certainly i mean that should be universal for everybody that, that should be universal for retail investors nobody's going to go into an investment thinking oh you know what i can lose this it's fine i mean it's you know that's not you know it, it, that's if that's how it you know it, only people who go to vegas do that i mean that's not this is not a you know an, an investment a retail a, re, a real estate investment uh should not be a gamble uh, if you know what you're doing if you're not i mean there's a certain amount of risk obviously uh, it's not a riskless investment by any chance. And that's one of the first thing I tell a lot of my you know, even retail investors. When I, you know, when I'm asked as to, you know, what is the worst case scenario? Well, the worst case scenario is you lose your money. I mean, that is true. I mean, if if, if, if you have to be honest with everybody, that is the worst case scenario, but, but how you do that, you know, there has to be a certain, you know, amount of like certain disasters that happen in your operations and in the economy as a whole, in order for an investment to be lost completely um so there are a lot of safeguards and a lot of things that could be done and you know so you can start at the worst case scenario and then work your, you 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 know kind of reverse engineer it back like okay that is the worst case scenario but but let's let's kind of backtrack it a bit in order for that to happen all these all these horrific things have to occur and you know they've never occurred with me or they've never occurred with my team um this has kind of been the performance so that's how you kind of tackle that but But in terms of in terms of, uh, you know, capital preservation and capital growth, I mean, they should be hand in hand and everything. I mean, everything capital, capital preservation should be should be a no brainer for I mean, that should be like a, you know, obviously we are in this industry to preserve capital, Um, you know, so that that should be a given Uh, capital growth. That's that's going to be a whole different sort of calculus and and structure itself to see how and what way you're going to be able to grow. And achieve the kind of returns that you're expecting it to achieve, um, while 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 maintaining the correct assumptions, while maintaining the the correct patterns, while maintaining the correct you know guidelines as to how you're managing your investments. Um, you know, I mean, half the battle is actually buying something right, and then the other half of the battle is managing it right until you actually sell it on the other
1: end. I think that that is very apparent, and it's almost it should be obvious, right, that the investors are motivated to preserve their capital, and I just kind of figured that since they're, they have so much more capital that it's obviously they're taking more risk. Um, and, and so you, you did touch on it uh, regarding like their due diligence is more extensive.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of institutional investors, depends where they come from, especially like, so these days, especially overseas investors, European investors, Asian investors, um, they have a lot lower threshold of returns than American investors, North American investors, meaning like they have, their return expectations are a lot lower. Um, you know, the capital preservation need is still there, but there's a big difference from, from someone you know coming from a country that is really in a, a not a good economic situation. They're not offering them a huge amount of they can't make a, a huge economic interest, or economic upside there. They're coming to the U.S. and they have a, a you know an expectation of you know if, if they're if they're able to achieve five six percent IR, they're they're happy. Um, whereas opposed to some other maybe domestic national you know U.S. based investors, institutional investors. They have to achieve double that, if not more, um, to, to, to for that for that to make sense for them. So so really is is it it, it all depends on your ret- return expectations, and that's really what differentiates people and how they how e- that's really what differentiates people when they when they get into a deal bidding situation and 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 how some somebody somebody loses a deal to somebody else because you know, a lot of times you know, people come to the table with the numbers, they come I mean, the numbers are the numbers, if you at the end of the day, if you if you calculate the deal, right, and underwrite it correctly, which, you know, that should be the first step is underwrite a deal correctly and have the right assumption and have the right growth pattern. At the end of the day, you, you know, the numbers are the numbers. Um, what what makes a difference is what someone how someone wins out on over someone else is what their return expectations are. If my returns expectations on a deal is, you know, 15% IRR and somebody else's return expectation with the same exact numbers is 10% IRR. They're going to win the deal over me any day because I, I I I can't dip down low enough to to get below that 15% IRR.
1: Yeah, and that 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 brings up another point in my mind where there seems to be two schools of thought right now where there there obviously there isn't the, the bid ask gap we're seeing right now between where buyers are uh, able to buy and sellers are willing to 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 sell for. And I think that's resulting in a lot of capital on the sidelines. And that there's that been this sentiment where there's going to be a massive wave of opportunity coming. And other people are saying there's a lot of capital on the sidelines. So that's going to reduce the the real opportunity that's going to be coming once it, once it does unleash itself on the market. And I wonder how do these larger institutional groups, how do they, how are they navigating the, the competition in the market? Are, do they even have to compete for deals, or is it the fact that they have so much capital, does that kind of Allow them to throw their weight around and, and get into opportunities whenever they want.
0: Oh no, they have to compete. I mean, they have to compete like anybody else. I mean, especially on good deals and and deals that make sense. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, make yeah, make no mistake. I mean, they they not everybody holds all the cards. So you know, just because again, remember what I said in the beginning. It's not just all about money. Hey, money makes it makes it makes a huge difference, and and who cuts the check makes a difference. But that's not that's not the only thing that differentiates them. Um, you know, I, I, relationships are key and, and what is bringing, you know, everything else holistically that's being brought to the table is key. Um, if I have, you know, for, for, even if for deals that we do, if I have two sets of institutional investor, one guy is bringing money to the table and the other guy is bringing this, they're both bringing the exact same kind of money to the table. Um, and one guy has a much better relationship with me is, is great to work with has a fantastic team we are very comfortable together they they also are bringing um you know they're bringing expertise to the to, to the table because they we think we, they're going to be a great partner the other guy is just bringing money and he's he's like well i'll just give you i'll just give you, i'm just going kind to of cut a check for you and you know i'm not going to bring anything else to the table i'm probably going to go with the first guy i'm definitely going to go with the first guy because you know it's exact same money but i'm going to go with somebody who brings a little bit more value than just to, to check their writing so, so yeah, there is absolutely on good deals and on deals that that are, um, that are that are com- that are competitively uh, priced well and generate the right kind of returns. Um, you could have some competition out there uh, from institutional investors. So they're they're not they're not just because they have the money doesn't mean that they have all the power.
1: And I want to dig a little deeper into how these groups think, if you don't mind. I want to know from their perspective what factors contribute to the success. Of a real estate deal, maybe particularly a multifamily syndication deal.
0: Um, I mean, it, factors of success are are again varying. I mean, it depends what their expectations are. If they're achieving the right type of returns, if they're if you know, you got to understand. You, you, first of all, you got to understand whether what is what is most important to them is is cash flow more important to them, uh, or is 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 kind of deal multiples more important to them, is IRR more important to them? So it, you know. They all have different sort of levers of what is priority when they get into a deal. Um, and you have to understand that before you sort of, before you position your deal or if you want to position your deal correctly, because you could be pitching, well, this deal has amazing cash on cash, on cash story, but the IRR is not as good and you don't know, you know, and, and, and if the person you're talking to doesn't really care about cash on cash, but they care about IRR, you just lost that investor. Or, or if you're talking to an investor and you're pitching him, you know, IRR, 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 like, yeah, this is going to be, this is going to be great. It's going to generate, you know, twenty percent IRR, and he doesn't really care about that. He just wants the cash flow. They, they, they just want to make sure that this this deal is generating enough cash flow annually. They don't really care about the IRR. Again, you're 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 kind of barking up the wrong tree. So you got to make sure that you're you're positioning the deal correctly, which and, and that only comes from asking the right questions. You know mm-hmm. that, yeah, and. and and that's, you got to ask questions. You got to ask questions in order for you to, to get to, to see what your audience are and what they're expecting. Uh, I mean, heck, it's a, it's a lesson I had to, you know, I'm having, I'm having to relearn all the time now that we're, you know, we, we're through our fund and we're talking to retail investors. Um, I, I, in fact, I just recently told my, my team, listen, just, you know, stop me when I'm, when I'm presenting to retail investors, because I tend, to, I tend to almost speak the same way as I'm speaking to you now um or i'm speaking to to a lot of our institutional investors to retail investors and it's sometimes a lot of times it just they you know they glaze over and, and it, it's it, 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 you know, i have to stop and 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 take a step backward and start to ask a lot more questions as to what do you know what do you you know what are you comfortable with what kind of stuff can i explain you know what are the concepts that you're familiar with that's for retail investors so for institutional investors you got to ask also very similar the right questions what kind of returns expectations do you have? Where do you, you know, how do you calculate returns? How do you calculate the validity of the deal? Um, you know, what is the most what is the most value in a in a deal for you? What you know, what makes a deal more valuable? How do you how do we grow together? You know, what is you know is this going to be a programmatic approach or non-programmatic approach? Is this are you more transactional or are you more relationship driven? Um, so you know you got to understand all of that before you kind of even see if you know how the deal is going to make sense and what they're going to what are they can expect out of out of you and the deal.
1: Yeah, there seems to be because I know they're, they're very different retail investor and the institutional partner, but there seems to be some overlap in, in the way they think and it's just on a bigger scale maybe. Um, but earlier you did draw that distinction between calling an institutional group's investors or versus a partner, and so I wanted to know and I know it can probably vary, but what ways do they or what approach do they take to structuring those partnerships? And if it might be easier to kind of give us an example of how maybe the partnership might work in terms of structure, that'd be great.
0: Yeah, I mean, they typically come in either as they could come in as limited partners, uh, or they can come in as joint venture partner or co GP partners. So they, there's, you know, two ways they would come into the table. But even if they come in, even if, if an institutional investor comes to the table as a limited partner, which a lot of groups do, even as limited partners, they are not—they the are not the same kind of limited partners as retail investors. Retail investors, when they come into a deal as limited partners, they really have—I mean, they—they—they—they they, can't—they don't have any say so in the deals necessarily. They have no—you um, know—they can't necessarily tell you what to do and what not to do and how to run the operation. Whereas institutional limited partners (LPs), even though they're technically limited partners, they have certain control provisions that they, they, they come in with that they have to sign on on, which, which is natural. I mean, you know, and I'm always surprised when I say this to someone, to some of the operators and sponsors out there and they're like, well, what kind of control provisions? I'm like, well, what do you, what do you expect when somebody's giving you 90% of your equity and <laughs> giving you a check for 90% of the equity, if you're bringing 90% of the money, did you expect to just be, you know, you know, scot-free and not, not, not have to be answerable to anything? Like that's, that's not reasonable. So you know, if somebody's bringing ninety percent of the money to the table, they're going to have certain provisions that they're going to want you to perform. They're going to either have certain performance metrics, or they're going to, and they're also probably going to have some certain voting rights uh, on the deal. They're going to have um, you know, some kind of sell uh, buy sell provisions. They're going to have to have some kind of voting right or control right on on you know when to sell, how to sell, when what you know what kind of you know what kind of metric to use on that. So. You know, just because they're limited partners from institutional side doesn't mean that they they have no say so on things. In fact, it's the exact opposite. They they generally comes with a lot of kind of covenants and control covenant provisions that that gives them certain amount of you know comfort and and uh, ability to kind of pull the trigger on certain things in a deal.
1: Yeah, that's funny because I've heard a lot of horror stories. Not a lot, but I've heard a few horror stories about sponsors working with uh, institutional partners and. I think that's led to some misconceptions regarding how you work with an institutional group. And a lot of people just choose not to even work with them at all. I wanted to have you maybe address that. Are there any misconceptions that you're aware of regarding institutional capital and bringing them on as a partner? And are any of them valid or, or correct?
0: Yeah, look, I mean, yeah, some of them are valid. Some of them are incorrect. Some of the, some of the misconceptions out there are is that, that institutional partners want to come in and just take over the show. That's not what they want to do. You know, you know, that's not to their they're not in the business of coming in and taking over the show because that's not they don't have time for that. The reason they're partnering up with someone with a with a sponsor or syndicator is because they want them to drive. They want them to drive the business plan. The reason they they invested and agreed to invest with someone is because they believe in their vision. They believe in in the way they operate an asset. They believe in 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 the story of that asset and how they can grow it and how they can manage it for them. They don't want to come in and just take over. I mean, that's not to their advantage. Um, you know, the other misconception is that, that, uh, you know, uh, you know, everybody who, who, you know, they, they'll, they'll write the, uh, they'll come in and write a check and, and, and like not, and, and not bother you or something like that. And that's, that's, again, that's also a misconception because, you know, if somebody, as I just said earlier, if somebody's coming in and writing you an 80, 90% of the money check, they're, they're going to have some certain rights and certain provision that you're going to have to provide. You're going to have to give them more updates. You're going to have to give them more. Uh, keep them updated with the, with what's going on with your asset and their property. So you know there are certain controls with that. Um, you know s- some of the conceptions out there as far as like in what you mentioned horror stories of, of of institutional investors maybe walking away from a deal or um, walking away at the twelfth hour or you know it happens. Yes, I'm not I'm not going to say it doesn't happen. Of course it happens. Um, but you know you you have to make sure that you work with the right. In, you know, partners, you have to make sure you ask the right questions. You have to make sure you have a backup plan. You have to make sure that you're you're not leaving things to the twelfth hour. Obviously, um, you know, and and you got to be prepared. Preparedness is, is is number one. I mean, you know, you got to be prepared. You know, and and don't ever ever just rely on just hope. You know, that's the, you know, I people, I, I, anybody who knows me well knows that I hate the word hope because you know hope is hope is just not a strategy. That's, that's not, you know, it's you got to have a plan in motion, and you got to have contingency plan in motion. And and then if God forbid something was, was to happen where a partner walks away, you got to have somebody else as a backup, uh, to some extent that you can go to. Does it always work that way? No, sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes people get hurt in those equations, and um, they end up they end up losing money. I You know, I'm not gonna say it never happens. It does happen. But but, you know, it, it happens a lot more rarely, I guarantee you, than, you know, it's like saying, like, if you drive a car, you're gonna get into an accident. Well, are you gonna get an, I'm like, yeah, that's a possibility, people get into accidents. But do do most people get into accidents? No, I mean, probably 98% of the people who drive cars don't get into accidents, but some do.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned, and you, you did touch on this earlier, the questions and asking them and making sure you're doing your own due diligence from the operator sponsor side of things as well a lot of times it'll end up being that 12th hour change, or um, I don't know if it, the retrade is the right phrase there, but are there questions that a sponsor or operator should ask that maybe you haven't mentioned that, that will help them kind of prevent those last minute changes on the institutional partner side of things?
0: Well, you gotta make sure, I mean, with, when you deal with an institutional partner, you're, you're obviously, you're gonna be presented at some point with a term sheet, or you should be presented with a term sheet. And, and there should be a mutually, uh, you know, a mutually agreed upon term sheet that is signed. This is not just a verbal term sheet. This is actually a a legal term sheet that they that they that the institutional partner presents either via email or via an actual document. Um, And you have to agree and and, you know, there got to be some kind of paper trail or email trail or something about the agreement that's in place with those terms. Uh, And once those terms are met and then you start working towards what is needed for the closing and you have to also ask a lot of those questions before you even go down that road, you know, you can you can even front load a lot of those questions before you even get to signing the term sheet like what do you expect what do you what's your process like you know what 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 sort of documents do you need what you know what uh what steps are you going to take to get us to sort of the closing table what you know how do you guys work with attorneys what you know what are your attorneys going to want um you know who else do you need to do you need to kind of bring loop in in order for for, for this to be to, to to get to the closing table. So. So if you, again, it's all about asking all the all the questions ahead of time before you get to the point where like you asked a question and somebody gives you an answer that you don't like, and you are like, shit, I don't like that answer. Well, at that point, you're you're, you know, 10 days from closing and it's 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 a little bit too late.
1: You obviously have a lot of experience working with these institutional groups and you've likely experienced firsthand the pros and cons of bringing them onto a deal. And so, I would love to know what are some of the major advantages and disadvantages of working with institutional groups that maybe you haven't uh, already touched on?
0: Well, I, I, it, I, that's the major advantages is that you when you when you find a an institutional partner that you can work with and who become a programmatic partner with you, um, you know it's it's almost like it it's like having a money partner with you or operating partner with you. I mean, you can at that point the first transaction is always the hardest it's always the hardest you know the first transaction is takes so much so much you know brain damage to 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 do that you know hopefully the second transaction gets easier and the one after that gets easier and the one after that i mean so uh you know so once you have an institutional partner on board for one transaction it's always a lot easier to do this, the the you know other repeat transactions after that um the second thing is 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 obviously the money the capital i mean you know yeah you can go out and and source your deal through in retail investors um you're gonna be you're gonna have to you know answer to 50 or 60 or 100 retail investors as opposed to one institutional partner um yes they may have different demands yes they may have different reporting criteria yes they may be a little bit more picky yes they may be sometimes a pain in the butt to 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 deal with in terms of you know reporting and you know and being demanding and having some control provisions and stuff like that but at the end of the day you get one check that pays for the majority of your equity isn't that a, isn't that value right there you know so i i i can't i can leave it up to i mean it depends whether you're glutton for punishment and want to answer to 100 people as opposed to one person
1: it brings to mind the saying bigger is better and i know that might that that's not always the case and it- In light of the recent changes in the real estate environment with higher interest rates, the occupancy levels changing across the board, and uh, just a lot of the uncertainty in the market, from the perspective of these institutional groups, are are they facing any unique challenges or obstacles as they approach real estate investing, specifically from their perspective?
0: I think their challenges are, are their challenges are our challenges. The challenges for institutional groups are the challenges for a lot of sponsors, finding the right deals, finding the right de- sponsors, finding the right operators. You know, um, they're experiencing the same thing we are. They're not I mean, we're all in the same boat together they there. You know, they may be sitting in a different part of the boat, but we're in the same boat, man. I mean, you know, they, they, this, just, just because they're just because they're sitting in first class doesn't mean that they're not they're not going to be hit by the same wave as we are. So I mean, you know, we are we're, we're all in it together. Are, what what the market is doing is affecting all of them, um, as well as the sponsor um, out there that is that is trying to do a, you know, a deal and and close on a deal. So uh, market conditions is, is pervasive to to everybody, and and you know. Um, so so yeah, I mean, you know, as far as what they're experiencing, it's the same experience as we as we do every day. They're, they're they're trying to find the right deals. They're trying to find the right sponsors, and and the sponsors themselves are not able to these days. It's very tough to find the right deal that pencil in, and um, and but once you do, hold on to it and and try to close that transaction. Um, we think there's going to be a whole lot more deals coming in the market that are going to make sense towards uh, Q end of Q three Q four this year, uh, as we see sort of the interest rate um you know uh stabilization at some point and and then uh before we see it we're not going to see an interest rate retrenchment anytime soon probably for another not for another year and a half or two years but 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 we don't need that uh in in order for us to see more velocity of deals in order for us to see more velocity of deals people have to have uh more confident that that we have stability in the rate environment more you know more stability in in the capital markets environment Uh, and we're not going to see that until we see sort of a you know, a steadfast, um, you know, stability on on some of the rates. Um, And I think we probably are, we're getting pretty close to that. We're getting pretty close to that. I think, you know, we might be three, four months away from that, but we're getting pretty close to that.
1: Yeah. To to sort of build off that question, have you seen any major shifts in the institutional capital's uh, approach to investing and are there any newer shifts or trends that you're seeing on that side?
0: I mean, you know, the, the shifts is the, there certainly have been shifts in terms of their of returns expectations. I mean, the returns expectations have definitely have certainly been uh, tampered in the, in the past few months, um, even 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 since, the, you know, really the beginning of the year. So a, a lot of institutional investors who may have demanded uh, return expectations in the, in the upper teens are now you know, closer to the mid teens. So it's, it's, you know, certainly from a returns expectation pers- perspective, they've gotten tampered because they've gotten more realistic, like, you know, Hey, like you know, in order for us to do, if we want to do more deals, it's really a matter of volume. A lot of those guys, for a lot of those guys, it's a volume game. They have to, they have to put out a certain amount of money in a certain amount of time. And, you know, unless they loosen up the belt on those return expectations, they're starting to realize that they're not going to put out enough money. They're not going to find enough deals and they're going to be just sitting on a pile of cash. So that goes back to one comment you made earlier as far as like a you know, oh, there's gonna be a ton of money sitting on the sideline. Well, the reason there's gonna be a ton of money sitting on the sidelines is because that money was greedy as hell in the beginning of the year or end of last year, and they thought that they could get the same returns that they used to used to get back in December, and they're now realizing that. Yeah, if I want to if I want to put more money out, I need to be a little bit more realistic and more up to date on the market. And and the market is just not giving me those kind of those kind of return expectations. If I want to, you know, if I want to put on enough money out there now, if I want to if I don't care and if I just want to sit, sit it out and just find the right and, and just keep digging through the, the haystack to find that one needle that gives me the right the right return expectation. That's fine, too. But a lot of a lot of institutional uh, investors don't have that comfort. Uh, they have to put out a certain amount of money at a certain amount of time, especially if they're fund driven. Um, going back to what I said earlier about sort of your fund mandate, uh, you know, your, a lot of those institutional investors have certain fund mandates, meaning so- sometimes they have to be, you know, down to a timing perspective. So uh, meaning like, you know, by the end of the year, their investment mandate tells them they have to spend a hundred million dollars out of their fund or otherwise they're, you know, otherwise they either get penalized or they just, you know, it flips over to another year. They create a different tax, you know, tax nightmares for them, whatever it might be. So so in order for them to put out that $100 million, they got to find deals. And in, 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 in order for them to find deals, they got to adjust their return expectations in order for them to put out that money.
1: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I was on an interview uh, yesterday with a different investor, and he was saying, I made the comment on how much capital is on the sidelines, and he expressed the, the perspective that, a lot of times the people with a lot of capital tend to hesitate. In two thousand eight he was an investor there and he also said that a lot of that capital stayed on the sidelines even when the, the market started to dip because they were waiting for the bottom and I guess they, they missed it and weren't able to take advantage of all that opportunity. I
0: mean, look the smart investors are the one who can just keep looking no matter what the market is doing. Um, you know, the, the, the money that get that loses out are, are those who stay well, I'm gonna who stayed out, out of the market, who just pulled themselves completely out of the market. Um, and I and I hear that from everybody they're like you know oh I'm just gonna pull out for the next six month I'm just gonna go back in in six months from now well, if you do that you're not gonna find the gems that are gonna pop up between now and the next six months so if you it, it's it's you know I, it, people have always heard me say that you know it's not about timing the market it's, it's about time in the market you can't time the market you can't time the market because you because even no matter what the market is doing there's gonna be deals out there that are gonna make sense and you just have to you have to make sure that you look for them if you're an institutional investors obviously, you got to do more than that. You got to be a lot more proactive about actually adjusting your own policies on what you what you have to expect for returns. Your own policies on what you expect for, you know, a perfect scenario because there's never going to be a perfect scenario. And I and I have to sometimes go back to a lot of our institutional guys, you know, when they come, you know, w- when we bring them to a deal and say, "Look, man, you you met like ninety percent of your demands on this deal. You're not. It's not going to get any better than that. Like, you know, you you know, if you're looking for The 100% perfect scenario it doesn't exist. You got to be able to compromise on something, so you know, and 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 maybe pick something that is the least of all evil to compromise on. But if you want to put money out, and if you want to make sure that you're in the market, stays in the market, you got to compromise on something, Um, you know. But but you also don't have to. And if you're not driven by anything, if you're not if you're not under pressure to put out money, if you're not under pressure to I you know, I hate to say it, make a living because a lot of us make living by doing deals. And, you know, deals are the lifeblood of 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 syndicators, sponsors, operators out there. So, you know, there there's a lot of hurt and pain out there because there's a lot of sponsors and syndicators that are not, including us, you know, that are not that are not that are not doing deals and it's killing us. It's killing a lot of people out there that, you know, the the lack of deal, the paucity of of actually executing unsuccessful deals, um, it's hurtful. I mean it hurts. It's definitely hurt. It hurts the bottom line because at the end of the day that's that's how you keep the lights on and you got you got to keep doing deals. But also on the other side of the coin, I don't want to do bad deals. I want to, you know, I I refuse to compromise a lot of my expectations, a lot of the safety of my investments and, you know, the safety of my underwriting and the safety of my for my investors in order for me just to put out money out there or to or to just just to do a deal. Um, I'm not willing to do that. So there's gotta be a balance is, is what I'm saying. And I think the balance is just keep looking. Just keep looking. Uh the balance is keep looking. You you'll you'll if you look hard enough and often enough and and you it's a numbers game. If you look at enough deals out there, you'll find one that works. It's a lot of brain damage. But 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 you know, and hopefully that brain damage will get lessened and lessen as we get closer to that to that equalization point that I talked about earlier with the rates where people start having comfort and. And bringing more deals to the table, so you start to see more deal velocity, more executions, and I think that's coming. We just have to, we just have to, ha- you know, have enough oxygen to get there. Go to my our website uh, peak 15 capcom um, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, under Jalal John Azar. Um, you can email me at azar at peak15cap dot com. A z a r at peak15 peak one five capcom com azar at peak 15 peak one 5 cap I'm also on Instagram at JJ Azar. So yeah, any way you can find me.